Our conversation today is about that word salvation. Salvation is probably the biggest Christian word of all. Jesus himself said that his whole reason for coming into the world, his whole reason for leaving heaven and coming into the world, suffering, going to the cross, all that stuff, it, it was for this, Matthew or Luke 19.10. I came to seek and to save those who are lost. All humanity. So what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean, salvation? The Apostle Paul, in his letter to Titus, wrote a great paragraph explaining salvation. And he begins his explanation by anticipating a very common question that we get on the street all the time. There may have been a time in your life when you asked this question. Someone may have come up to you and said, are you saved? And you might have been puzzled and said, well, Okay, save from what? <laughs> Do you know something I don't? Is there an imminent terrorist attack? Or is the San Andreas earthquake really going to happen? How many, I don't know if how, many, how many of you saw that San Andreas movie, and I'm sure, I haven't seen it, but I'm sure The Rock came through and everything turned out okay. I probably will see it. Anyway, uh, but people, and that makes Paul's point. Paul's whole point is that the majority of people don't know that they need to be saved. Saved from what? And so Paul begins to answer this question, and he begins by going back to the past. Verse number three uh, of Titus chapter three. He says this, at one time we too. Now he's, he's saying there, at one time all of us who are now saved through faith in Christ, there was a time when we were and then he uses four descriptive words to describe the way our lives used to be. And there's a progression from one to another in these four words. The first one he uses is the word foolish. Now when Paul uses that word foolish, he's not discrediting people's intellect or their smarts or their common sense even. What he is saying is that humanity, as smart as it is, is without spiritual understanding and awareness of God, the true God and his truth. So there's no God, there's no God sense. And, and, and so the outcome of that kind of mis, uh, unawareness of God is the next term, disobedient. Living a life that is out of step, off the rails, in terms of God and his truth, going a different direction then God created human beings to go. And that in turn leads to the next condition of being deceived, being misled. L a person living their whole life thinking that they are on the right path when in reality they are headed right into, and this is the fourth word, being enslaved. Under the control, Paul says, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Now, it sounds like Paul is against passions and pleasures. And that's a pretty commonly mistaken attitude that people have about Christianity and about God, that God is this boring, joyless being, and that to be a follower of his, you have to, be, you have to give up all your joy and passion and pleasure in life and become this sort of nondescript routine, uh, all that kind of stuff. You know what? Nothing could be further from the truth. Where do we get our passion and our drive for pleasure? Where does that come from? That comes from God. There is nobody who's more passionate 
And there's nobody who is more driven toward pleasure than God is. Psalm 16 says, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. God's nature is passion and pleasure. And we were made in his image. And And when we were first made, the passions in us and the desires for pleasure that come out of those passions all lined up with his own. They were his in us. But Paul is saying that somehow we have gotten derailed off the tracks. Our passions and our pleasures are now turned away from God and running a different direction than God. And they are deceiving us. And so though we live in a very advanced society with lots of lots of smart politicians and smart leaders and smart philosophers, yet this is how highly advanced people can make really, 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 really bad spiritual and moral decisions. It's because our desires for what we think is really good and what we think will cause humanity to really flourish and to be better off than it's ever been before, well, very often, those lead to the very opposite of bringing more damage and destruction and breakdown into people's lives. It's because we've been deceived. The people that get on that airplane uh, in Asia, I forget exactly where it was, the people that got on that airplane about, what, two, three months ago, uh, thinking they were headed for a certain destination, and the pilot, one of the, the co-pilot, had something else in his mind, and the pilot ran out, went out of the cabin, he locked the door, and then he took that whole planet with all the people on it into a mountain. Okay, that's a good picture of where our desires take us right now. Because they, we think it's, they're leading us the right way. Now Paul discusses in the next passage what kind of damage our misconstrued desires and longings for pleasure, where that takes us. He says in the next sentence of verse number 3, It really leads to the social breakdown of all society. It leads to damaged, injured, broken relationships. Here's how he says it. We used to live in malice. Now that's the word for toxic, poison attitudes that develop in our hearts toward other people. And then he uses the word envy. Envy is not only wanting to live on the street with the Joneses, but wanting, and not only wanting to keep up with the Joneses, but it's wanting to get ahead of the Joneses, okay? That's envy. It's competition and dog eat dog and step on the rights of other people and, and all those kinds of things. And then he says this escalates to what we see all over our world today. He says being hated and hating others. Reciprocal hate, reciprocal hurting of one another. And isn't that a good description of our world? It is. And where does most of our pain come from in this world? It, came, it comes from broken, injured relationships. Almost all the pain comes from that. We have Judge Judy, who tries to reconcile all these pains every day at 4 o'clock, from 4 to 5 on, I forget, CBS or something like that. Judge Judy is doing her thing. Uh, <laughs> Jill and I do watch her once in a while. So uh, Then uh, there's Dateline. Talks about family situations where there have been murders and all that stuff. It talks about Jerry Springer. I don't watch Jerry Springer, but I've caught glimpses of it, and that's nuts, okay? Uh, Then there's uh, uh, Ferguson, 
Missouri, there's ISIS, and then, but those are all the big things outside of us sometimes, but we come right down to our own lives. Can't we all in this room today, I bet we could all compile our own list of hurt and pain and tension and stress and friction and this relationship isn't what I would like it to be and all those kinds of things. And our, you could look at our own hearts. I bet we could all make a little list of attitudes in our own hearts that we see from time to time. Wow, man, that, that is not, I know that's not what God would have in my heart today. So that's our world. And Paul says that was the world that we used to be under the control of. And we were locked into that world without any hope. Now he brings us into the present in verse number four. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. Now that word kindness that he uses there is of just overflowing uh, care that people recognize. Uh, you, have you ever, you know, you ever around a person that you feel that, that person is so genuine, so accepting. I'm just, a, there's an attraction to that person. That's the love of God, the kindness of God. And then he says the love of God. You know that word love that's used right there is uh, philanthropia. Of course, we get our, Greek, or our word uh, philanthropy from that. It means love for humanity. So what this is saying is, but when, the, when that overflowing kindness and love of God our Savior for all humanity appeared. What is that Greek? What, I'm saying Greek because Paul wrote this letter in Greek. So what does is, what is that Greek word appeared mean? Well, it's where we get our word epiphany. Uh, and the root of that word was to refer to a very, very dark, cloudy, rainy day, like the one we've got today. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the sun breaks through the clouds and just lights up the earth. Now, earlier today, I was asking God, could we coordinate? When I get to this point in my message, <laughs> it would be a powerful illustration. If right when I said, the sun breaks through. <laughs> the sun came out. But I, I'll have to talk to the Lord about that later. I don't know what's going on. But anyway, uh, that's what the word means. Uh, epiphany. And then so the word came to mean this. It is a sudden and profound understanding that breaks through into a person's awareness. And this is exactly what God made to appear in all of his kindness and all of his love for humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's epiphany sent into the world like the breaking of light into darkness to give every human being who will come to him a sudden, profound understanding of the truth that really is the truth about life, the truth about God, the truth about yourself, the truth about the future that God has for you. He's the epiphany. Verse number five, Paul says it. He saved us. There's that word saved. He rescued us. That's what the word means. He rescued us. Now, how did he do that? Well, Paul says, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. You know, one of the greatest misunderstandings and deceptions in our world 
is the idea that if there is a God out there, and whoever that God might be, when I leave this world, if the list of the good things I have done while I've lived here is longer than the list of the sinful things, the bad things I've done, then whoever that God is out there, when I stand before him someday, it's going to be okay for me. God's going to invite me into whatever paradise there is because the good things I've done is a longer list than the bad things I've done. But Paul flat out says here, absolutely not. That's one of those deceptive misunderstandings we've got. Uh, the reason for that is, it's not by our good works, our good deeds. The reason is, because no matter how much we add to that list, we still have this other list of bad deeds that's there. It's still there. And God, because he is a pure, good, sinless, holy God, he can't just pretend that other list isn't there. If he did, if God just looked the other way, if he pretended it wasn't there, or if he overlooked our sins, he would be compromising his own character. We would have a God then who would be willing to turn his head and look the other way and let evil remain unresolved in the world or in his universe. Well, we, no one would want a God like that. I wouldn't want to live in a universe with a God who will tolerate a little bit of evil because the little bit of evil he tolerates might be directed against me. No, God is absolutely pure. He's absolutely sinless. And in order for anyone to have a relationship with him, sin has to be revolved, resolved. By the way, there's the epiphany, okay? Just, <laughs> just two or three minutes late. I, I'm going to say I was early. God's right on time. Okay, anyway. Uh, so, uh, but the point I'm making is, we, so our problem is we can't by ourselves get rid of that sin list. And so Paul says God saves us not by, the, by our own earning of it, but there's another way. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but because of his mercy. We are helpless to save ourselves. But God loves us so much that he, he has found a way to extend mercy to us so that we can be set free from our sins. Jesus is our Savior because in loving mercy, he went to the cross and he allowed the Father in heaven to pour out all of his anger and judgment against sin upon himself. He said, Father, I have not sinned. I am a, I'm your sinless, eternal son. I've taken on humanity, become a human being so that I can go to that cross and you can put all, I'm going to take the blame for every sin of every human being on all the lists, all the sin lists of the world. Jesus took all those sin lists and he took them to the cross. Your sins and mine were nailed to that cross with Jesus so that you could be completely pardoned, completely forgiven of your sins, not on your own merit, but on the merits of Jesus Christ because of what he did for you, not what we can do for ourselves. And that is the heart of the word salvation. It's what Jesus, trusting in what Jesus did for us. And then, in verse number six, Paul says, he saved us through the washing. I'm gonna read the whole verse. Of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom God poured out generously through Jesus Christ. 
Let's break that down just a little bit. What it's saying is that when a person puts faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for them on the cross, the third person in the Trinity that we talked about the last two or three weeks, the Holy Spirit, he does something. He enters into that person's deepest heart and cleans and does a, a deep cleaning in that person's life, cleansing them from their sins. That means forgiving them of every sin that's ever been committed. Now, you know what? I don't, uh, we need to catch a hold of that because I have talked with a lot of people that have come to Christ and received him and maybe received him years ago, but you know what? They're still, they're still living under guilt and condemnation for what they did when they were 16 or for things that they know now, oh man, how... I, I, you know, feel bad, feel so bad about having done that, so full of regrets. But the, see, this we have to understand God's grace, and not doubt how how deep it goes. The Scripture says that where where sin increases, God's grace increases even more. It goes deeper. So no matter what your sins might have been, or my sins might have been, He will wash them all away, give you a clean slate absolutely clean slate. And that's what Paul, uh, Paul goes on to say here. Uh, it'll lead to a rebirth. Leads to two things. First of all, the washing of the Holy Spirit leads to a rebirth. Now I'm going to go back to the Greek word again here because this is a good word. You know what that Greek word means? It's two words put together. The word Genesis and the word again. And so what happens to a person that receives Christ is Genesis all over again in your life. The same thing that God the Holy Spirit did when he created this whole universe. In the beginning, God created, and it was good. Well, what God did there, he will do personally inside of your chaotic life. And you'll get, you get a brand new beginning, a new Genesis in your life. The second thing that happens is uh, the Holy Spirit renews. And this is the word that talks about an ongoing process that begins the moment you are of your rebirth. He begins to heal your life from the inside out, to restore your life from the brokenness, piece by piece. He begins to rebuild your life from all those sin habits and those patterns and those wounds and those addictions of the past, the damage. And he begins to replace them with the qualities of Jesus' own life. Jesus enters into our life. And so being a Christian doesn't mean I do my best to try to copy Jesus' behavior. We're, we're doomed. We can't do that. No way. I'll tell you what, though, we can do is we can open up our hearts to Jesus Christ and allow him to come in and live inside of us. And then he will begin to share with us his power. His love, his character, his grace, his qualities. That's what this renewal is. We can't do that in our own strength either. It's him living in us. So, it's God realigning you and I with his passions and his pleasures, like he originally intended, so that your life can begin to flourish just like he intended. Verse number seven. 
So that having been justified, that means pardoned, by his grace, that's his mercy, we become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. You know, it's a wonderful thing, I guess, when you have like a, a wealthy uncle or aunt or something, and, uh, and they pass, oh, that's not wonderful that they pass on, but <laughs> I guess <laughs> this is an unplanned illustration, so that's why that came out that way. But, uh, but you know what I'm talking about. There's an inheritance there. Okay, an inheritance is a good thing, and grateful for aunts and uncles that think along those lines, but uh, that's an inheritance for this life. But Jesus is talking about here that when we receive him, we immediately become an inheritor of his presence in this life, but of an eternity of knowing the pleasures of God that we can't even imagine right here. And flourishing. He wants to help us flourish here and flourish forever. No floating around, boringly playing a harp. That's not the picture. That's not the future. God has a whole universe forever to be discovered and created and will use every gift and ability and talent that you or I could possibly have. That's what we have in Christ. And he can begin that work right now. So here's the question this morning. The really important question. Are you saved? Are you saved this morning as you sit where you sit? Have you had this epiphany this awakening through the power and grace and love of Jesus Christ. Have you experienced that? Let me ask the question this way. Are you sure that you're saved? I've met Christians who aren't sure that they're really saved. They, they live with a little bit of a doubt. Here's what... Um, Here's what God's word says to you this morning. Just as straight as it can be. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful, he is dependable, and he is just. He has a just basis and foundation for forgiving us because of his death. We covered that. So if we confess our sins he, the Lord Jesus Christ, is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is for you. And if you have never made that decision and you're here this morning and you understand what we're talking about today and you want to make that decision, you can make that decision right now where you are seated by saying, Lord, I need you. I need your forgiveness. Come into my life. I, I, you're my Savior. I accept you as my Savior. You pray that prayer. There's, your, there's your, the beginning of your epiphany, becoming aware that of the true and the, and the, the one and only true living God among the, all the other God claims of this world. There is one true and living God and that is reflected and known to us in the person and name of Jesus Christ. If you come to him, he will substantiate that in a deeply personal way and begin to change your life from the inside out. The second question I have this morning is this. Uh, I'm talking to a lot of people in here this morning that received Jesus as your Savior 
maybe many years ago. Let me ask you this question. Have you forgotten what he did for you? Has the wonder of his grace poured out, is that still fresh and just pulsating and, and in your heart day by day? Are you walking closely with him? Now, sometimes Christians need to be reminded of this salvation that we've been given because we can take it for granted. It can become very mundane, routine. It can lose the wonder of his love. I think most often that happens when, we, when life's blows start landing. Disappointments, discouragements, we get stunned. We get, that's where Christians usually fall into the loss of their joy in Christ. And I understand that. We've all been there. We all have. But I just want to offer a word of encouragement this morning that the same Lord that saved you many, many years ago is the same wonderful, loving Lord that is your sustainer in the, in the present life blow and disappointment that has just flattened you like a blow from Muhammad Ali, <laughs> okay? Uh, he's the one I re- most remember because I was there in the 60s and sting like, what was it? Um, dance like a butterfly, sting like a bee, right? Something like that. Anyway, uh, and uh, knockout after knockout after knockout after knockout. And maybe you feel like you've just been experiencing knockout, knockout punch, knockout punch, knockout, a left, a right, a left, a right. You're on the mat. The, guy, the, the uh, referee out there is counting. He's down to number nine. And you're still on the mat. Maybe that's where you are in your Christian life right now. But I just want to remind you this morning that Jesus has not changed. And he is there for you to help you get back on your feet, not in your own strength, but in his strength. And that's why we read in the book of Revelation chapter 7 that there's coming a day when in heaven and all the people that are dressed in all their white robes of linen are going to be standing around there worshiping the lamb. Uh, One of the elders on the throne is going to say, is going to ask a question to Jesus and say, who are all these people that are dressed in these white robes? And the answer is going to be, well, these are the people that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb and have come through terrible, terrible tribulation. That's who these people are. Through much tribulation, we inherit the kingdom of God, the Apostle Paul said. Through a lot of pressure, we run this race. And so I want to encourage you. He is still your Savior today for whatever you're going through. Trust him. Don't give up on him. Hang in there. Grow. Move forward in him. Let's pray. And as we pray today, you know what? I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and then we're going to go right into our water baptism, but I'd like to lead us in this prayer. And if you're here today and you've never prayed this prayer before, pray it along. If you have prayed it many, many years ago, pray it as just a reaffirmation, okay? Uh, but would you, uh, would you pray with me these words? Follow, I'll, I'll repeat, you, re- you repeat after me. Dear Heavenly Father, I need a Savior. I receive Jesus, your Son, into my life. I confess all my sins today. I believe Jesus died for me.
to forgive me of all my sins. I receive him and give my life to him. In Jesus' name, amen.